You're listening to 3CR Radio. And you're listening to In Your Face on 3CR with James. On today's show, we feature historic documentary Heart of a Tiger to commemorate AIDS Awareness Week and World AIDS Day. And later, musician, songwriter and DJ Dean Ty joins us. 3CR Well, in 1995, Peter Davis from the People Living with AIDS Radio Working Group produced a documentary at 3CR called Heart of a Tiger featuring Ben Lim. Ben was a member of the People Living with AIDS Speakers Bureau in Melbourne and passed away that year. 25 years later, we rebroadcast his historic documentary to celebrate Ben's life. Hello, my name is Peter Davis and I'm from People Living with AIDS in Victoria. It is my pleasure to introduce this special about HIV and AIDS and its effect in Australia upon a cross-cultural community. Speaking to us for the next 30 minutes will be Beng, a young man from a Chinese background who lives in Australia. Beng is also a member of People Living with AIDS in Victoria and has been a very active contributor to our organisation. He is a public speaker, speaking about his personal experiences of living with the HIV virus, which can ultimately lead to AIDS. During the course of this special also included will be two short excerpts recorded from talks in the past by Beng before live audiences. Many Asian cultures contain very different beliefs to what is understood and accepted by Western medicine. For many Asian people living with HIV and AIDS in Australia, not only is there the task of mastering a new language, but also there is the task of gaining understanding and support within their own community, which most likely know very little about HIV and AIDS. Southeast Asia. I'm 33 years old. I have been in Australia for 14 years and I consider Australia home. However, I will always be an Asian person and a young migrant living in Down Under. I come from Malaysia, which is like a Muslim country and it's, you know, um, it is very constricted, it's very limited. There are a lot of shoots and should nots. So when I came here, my first thing that I discovered was my sexuality. Um, I'm, I'm gay and life in Australia for the first two or three years was through sex. The opportunity to be able to explore my body the opportunity to be able to express myself. Back home to be homosexual is illegal. Before I came to Australia, I came out as a gay person to my parents. That was the very starting of my life. I think that was like for the first time I say something that is real to my parents. Mum, however much she loves me then, when hysterical, I remember she said to me that, you know, when you were born, darling, you were healthy. I mean, like, that is how parents understand that. And it's because immediately when you tell you tell your parents that you are gay, they immediately visualize you sleeping with another man and they say, my God, that is not healthy. And that's the only way that they can think about. So, so when I f- came to Australia, my God, it's not illegal to be gay and I can have sex with men and I don't have to answer to a government, I don't have to answer to anybody, you know. 
when I was a teenager, I spent all my time back in Asia hiding as a gay person. And now when I came to Australia, I was free, you know. So hence, I am sure, without any doubt, while I was having passionate sex, and I don't know which time I contracted the AIDS virus, I don't feel angry or I don't feel as if that I want to kill the other person that gave me the virus. I feel that I have the responsibility as well. If I want to share uh, my feelings or my lust or my passion with many, many men to the point that I do not know who I've got it from, I have to be able to say, yes, I enjoyed doing what I did then and I hold responsibility. It is very hard to find sexual contact when I was back in Asia. I remember every weekend the gay people would all flock to the beach and hoping that one of the tourists there would be gay and can you imagine there's one man and there are all these gay people wanting to have sex with him or her or you know. It was just very pressurizing, and that was my introduction to sex. It's just something very strange. Asian people just somehow don't look at one another as attractive then. But now, in the 90s, we are beginning to look at each other. At the same time, you must know that the Asian people they have a lot of face value. Being gay is very dangerous for a lot of gay men there. I think a lot of gay Asian men up to this day still get married because they want to project that image of a successful man who is able to have a female as a wife being the answer to their parents' dream and to continue the line of the family. They have children. But from very young, I know that that is not my destiny. I never have that belief. I know that I'm gay since I was nine. I did have to hide when I was back in Asia, but I know that when I come to Australia, that I will be able to be me, to be who Bang is. And one of the most important thing about being Bang is that Bang is gay. One of the things that is so beautiful about Australia is that it's not only very spacious as a country, it is very spacious mentally. And one of the things that I remembered when I first came, I, I said, there's something very strange that I'm feeling here. And it is, oh, babe, you can make so many choices. You can choose to exist in whichever way you want to, other than what your parents want you to, other than what the government says is right. So nothing is right or nothing is wrong, because that is what life is all about. I really enjoyed that. At the time when you found out, when you got your positive result, what was happening in your life? What were your, your goals that you were setting? As an Asian son, I always want to be successful so that mum and dad are proud of me. So at that time when I was not positive, I was working very, very strenuously, like 12-hour days, seven days a week, and I was doing very well, but also very empty, you know, like constantly drinking, doing everything so that I don't have to think about why I'm doing this. So I remember the, the company says that, hey Bing, you are doing so well now, we want to transfer you overseas. I don't know what tick in me, but uh, at that time, one of my best friend's lovers was dying of AIDS and my friend then was finding it very hard to visit his lover in Fairfield. So I said, look, you know, why don't I take turns with you? And I went and I took care of Philip. It was the greatest opportunity anybody can give me. And every day I still think of Philip fondly and thank him. So I said to myself, I will test. And I sort of know that I will be positive. I have n never known the rules of having sex and that was to be safe. I never know. And I remembered when the doctor said to me, you are positive, I looked at him and I said, now what? And he looked at me, he says, I do not know. And at the back of my mind, I know that Fairfield Hospital was there. And so I said to the doctor, I said, look, don't worry, I'll go to a gay doctor and he will be able to support me. So I was lucky. I am equipped by nature 
to be able to go out and get help. Next, we shall hear excerpts from two occasions when Beng has spoken in the past before a live audience. The first in 1993 and the second a year later in 1994. The best chance a person has of getting the support they need when they test HIV positive is if they share by communicating. When another person is willing to give and share their personal experiences with us, we receive the opportunity to think for ourselves and gain our own personal understandings. These two excerpts from Ben's public speaking have been chosen for their description of reactions from Ben's family to his being HIV positive. You will notice a difference in sound quality here as these are live recordings. It is December 1993. Beng is a young HIV-positive man, living in Australia and about to make a return visit to his family in Malaysia. As an eldest brother, Beng has inherited the position of role officer, which means to be assigned by the parents as the role model to the younger brothers and sisters. Beng is purposeful about his return visit, determined to communicate openly with his family about being HIV-positive. Just come back from Penang after one and a half years there and it's been difficult coming out to my parents. When I first contracted the virus, I had my brothers with me and we sort of like came to a pack and said that I will have to learn how to live with the virus first. We are still trying to accommodate the virus into our family. It is going to be a difficult time trying to talk to them because I live here and mum and dad lives over in Penang. One of the things that I find it very hard as a role of a son is that I don't normally talk to my parents or I don't normally tell them how I feel or what I'm doing and what is my quest here. I have to get out of that role and learn how to be friends with them. So I do get that sort of common ground and I can tell them about what I do as a positive person and it's very hard to talk to them because it's a very emotional pack and we generally just sort of like get blocked. I try my best to be able to reach out and maybe I'll just grab their hands. One of the things that I told, told my parents when I came out as a positive person and why I tell them is because I want them to share my life with me as a positive person while I'm still well. And it's very hard to share with them the way I want to because I do not know how to proceed on or continue on that feeling of wanting to share with them. I do not know how to make it into action or rather I feel as if that I am responsible for the well-being of my parents now because I am positive and I want to help them. Back in Penang is a very Muslim country. Every time I go back as a positive person, I feel a bit frightened because it's not a supportive government. Ever since I've come out to mum and dad, they are very, very frightened as well of my status. So going back uh, next month will be Chinese New Year, so there will be a lot of festive season. There will be a lot of hype and a lot of celebration. And one of the things that Chinese people wish each other uh, in that festive season is longevity. And I think it, it will be a very sensitive issue for me and my parents to put on a, a very good front. Hopefully, I will be there about a month before the festivity and have a tender, soft, connective time with my family. I need to learn how, how to do that as a positive son to my parents. Yeah. I'm sure things will work out fine with mum and dad. They have always been supportive, even when I came out as a gay man, you know. I think a lot of HIV-positive gay men uh, find it very hard to come out. As gay Asian men, we are already very suppressed, I think. And 
as positive men, it is very, very, very hard. And a lot of HIV-positive gay men do not have the access of language, and the access of knowledge, and the access of assimilation into this Western society. In the second piece, Bing is speaking in November 1994, at a time when he is soon expecting a visit from his parents to Australia. I think as a family we have learned, we are still learning to uh, try to accept the fact that I'm positive and also there are um, ways and means for me now to behave as a positive son. And lately I've just been dealing with how to embrace the issue of death. Talking to Peter, my lover, we started talking about how I wanted my funeral to be like, how much control I can have over that. Being able to slowly relay that message to my parents and see how they feel because as an Asian person I have been brought up to take care of their feelings as well and that is very difficult. I'm trying to let that go. Disclosure is very hard. Within the, the community, while I'm still healthy and alive, my mum and I should be able to trust people and talk to them because uh, I see that a lot of Asian people, when they die, the parents have no avenues to discuss why the son is dead and to work it through and say that my son has died of AIDS and we miss him, you know. Uh, the family has then started to work then to try to accept the fact that the son has died of AIDS. But I would like me and my parents to be able to have the opportunity now while I'm alive to work through the fact that I will die of AIDS and when I die they will have an easier time, a loving time, a compassionate time where they can be there for me, for my spirit and I will be there for them as well. I think my family would like me to live until the ripe old age of 80. <laughs> I, I don't even think that far. As a HIV positive person, I make very short-term goals. I always think positively in terms of my health. Um, I always affirm that I will live well and with joy. I always try to be as focused as possible in terms of my living and my dying. And I try very, very hard to acquire knowledge on how to merge that too. My parents want me to live for a long, long time because I think it is a way for them to cope. Whereas I would like to live as well as possible, the issue is not to live long. To stay with the now, the Buddhist says that no, we will all die, but the uncertainty of the hour of our death is always there. And I say now that hopefully as a, a person living with AIDS that when I die, I will be able to embrace my own death uh, well. and. That is what I would like to share with my family. You mentioned in one of your earlier public talks a certain pact you made between yourself and your brothers after you had told them that you were HIV positive. Could you please describe to us what this pact meant? I come from a family of three boys and I'm the eldest. And normally in a Chinese family, the eldest son is very looked upon. And then the other two boys are supposed to call me big brother. And I always feel very uncomfortable whenever my my brothers called me that and I remembered when I was 13 I said to them I said look guys you know, don't call me that just call me Bang I think from that day onwards I set up an environment whereby the three of us could actually sit down and talk because um, they do not have to falsely respect me they do not have to be afraid of me all they have to do is to look upon me as a friend and I was lucky that I did that. So when I came out to my parents and told them that I was gay, when mum and dad felt a bit lost and all, I still had 
Ian and Sang that I could turn to, and and I remembered I was crying and 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 Sang he turned around and said to me, "Oh, I think he's twelve." He said, "Do you want me to explain all this to Mum and Dad, Bang? Why can't they see it? You know." So I felt very loved. For the first time, you know, like, uh, and so when I found out that I was positive, I had no problems at all calling them. I remembered calling Ian, and Ian says I'll come over that night and I'll bring thing. You know, it was just fantastic. And and with them, oh, we sat down in a very silent way, in a very frightened way. We made a pact, saying that look, why don't You just live with it. I know it it is going to be hard, but you just have to. That is the starting of feeling a bit more. I said that I have the strength. If my two best friends say to me that you can do it, they never even point a finger at me and say you dirty poofter. They never turn around and say you aren't you shameful, aren't you guilty. There was. Like I was so lucky that I don't have to go through all that with close family members, because if you ask a lot of positive people, I mean, like a lot of them has to go through all that because when there is passionate love, there is also passionate hate. There is also passionate reprimanding people, you know, and we never have that. It was lovely. Also, my brothers are getting married and have children. I think the family was very afraid that I would feel as if I'm left behind. I was happy that mum and dad has got two other sons that that can do the traditional things. But I hope that as a HIV positive son, I will be able to give them other joy than the normal ones. One of the initial message that I get as a positive person is that I will not be able to live. But I learned that being positive is all about living and accepting that if it is not going to be a long life, it doesn't mean that it is not a good life, you know. So as the role of a filial piety son, Chinese son, I hope that you know we will be able to see the other role of me, the HIV positive son, and that is to be able to communicate with them as friends and to be able to let go of one another. I would like to say that being positive has given me an opportunity to feel life. I'm not saying it is the best thing for everybody, but I'm saying is that it is for me. I have learned how to love, trying to live my life as simple as possible. One of the things that I, I I'm always aware that I'm doing is that I always want to be special. And that is part of my suffering. It is very, very difficult when you constantly want to be special because, as human being, as a race, we are all the same. We are all just here at a borrowed time to do a few things, and then we will leave. And if I keep on wanting to be special, all the time I will feel as if I need to perform, and the performance factor always make me. Very tired. So,、uh, as a positive person, I learn that when I cannot do all that, I go into myself, and I try to find some kind of peace of mind within myself. And that is part of the most empowering thing for me as a positive person is that I am given the opportunity to learn who I am. The fear of death. It's not as great as five years ago. The the not knowing what is death all about is frightening, but the Buddhist teaching is helping me to understand what is death all about. And I think the Buddhist teaching is slowly taking away the ignorance of what is death, and the practice of meditation is making me. Experience what life is all about, and ultimately, I hope that I will be enlightened enough to look at death as a part of my life, and to accept it as it is, to be enlightened about it, to be able to embrace it.
Presently, I am taking AZT and Zovirax daily, and also to keep me well and feeling good, I do Chinese herbal therapy. And also, of course, I believe in healing myself mentally as well. It is very important to feel that you are able to contribute normally. Since I've left my job after seven years of being positive, I am actually starting back to work, and it is frightening to go back. And my father says to me, he says that Bing, you must learn how to be. As normal as possible. I suppose that is his way of saying, "Son, you'll be fine if you have to believe in yourself." And I believe that I still have very good few few years left, and I want to be able to contribute, and I want to be able to participate, and I want to be able to feel life. At work, I am still feeling very tentative. And most of my days there, I am just trying to make myself comfortable as a worker. But I believe that there will be the day that comes where I would not feel discriminated upon. The human race are here to give love and to give support. However, individually, we have to learn how to accept. I'm sure when a person just find out and he hasn't got the English language behind him, he will feel very frightened. And I want to say this to him or her: Don't run away from that fear. Stay with that because that is the starting of your journey to acquire power for yourself as a positive person. It is very hard, and you need support. Give your family a chance. I know it is. It sounds very frightening, but give your family a chance. If you feel as if that you have nobody else to turn to, turn to your family. I hope that nobody that has turned to their family for support will encounter violence or this or that. But ultimately, parents still love their children. You know whether they are positive or what. As parents and child, they will be able to learn how to work that through, and come as one after that. Generally, people do not know much about the virus until they have encountered somebody that they love coming down with the virus, or somebody that is close to them. Has died, you know. Like I think a lot of positive people leave it to the very end. Like when they are very sick, then they tell their parents. I think it is a shame when they do that because then they are they have cheated them themselves out of very important times of their life where they could learn how to accept love and give love as well to their most. Important people, their parents. You know, I just want to say this. It has been a nervous time building towards taping of this tape, and I want to do so well for this tape that I can't do it. <laughs> I hope that with this tape, it will be something that I can reach out to the Asian people who is. Living with the virus, and if this tape can touch one person's life, it will be my greatest joy. And I hope also that with with this tape, when people hear it, they will feel that they can go out and enjoy their life, and to be able to say I am all right, although I am positive. But I am still living well. If you could have your time over again, would you not test HIV positive? To be truthful, Peter, yes, I would not want to be positive. But it doesn't mean that、um, I'm not enjoying my life and I'm not living my life mindfully. It has not been 
a smooth sailing life after finding out that I'm positive. But it has been a very eventful life. It has given me a lot of opportunities to taste what is life. And it has also given me a chance to learn about life. And that is, life is full of changes. Nothing is permanent. And accept that. And that is the basis of my life now. Remember, in the absence of a cure or a vaccine, education about the virus remains vitally important. And that was Heart of a Tiger with Bing Lim, produced in 1995 by 3CR's Peter Davis from the People Living with AIDS Radio Working Group. 
began that with Sydney songwriter, musician and DJ Dean Ty with their track Freedom and I chatted with them this week. So Freedom's actually a song that I wrote about my um, personal story um, growing up in a small conservative <laughs> little town called um, Ipoh in Malaysia. Um, so I grew up in Ipoh and and I usually say that's why I have a funny accent. Because <laughs> growing up, I speak three languages. Um, so it speaks about my story growing up in, in Ipoh and then moving to um, Sydney. So sort of my journey as, um, as a queer Asian artist uh, and then coming out, finding my truth, my voice and my freedom in Australia. I love the music video to Freedom. I love the fact it's got an all-Asian cast. Tell us about the clip. Uh, yeah, the, so the... You know, the music video, basically, it's, you know, I went to um, the director, Chris Kuyen. Um, They are actually, um, you might have seen them in SBS's Hungry Ghost um, recently. So I went to them with an idea of saying, you know, I wanted to, like, have more representation in, in the gay scene. Because um, even in the queer scene, with queer parties, I tend to be the only uh, queer Asian performer or DJ or one of the very few. So I just wanted to like create a moment where, you know, all of, all of us queer Asian artists, queer Asian kings and queens, whatever they, they identify, can stand together in the video and just celebrate our background, celebrate, you know, our identity, basically be strong and be proud. So you're really challenging racism and erasure within the queer art scene through the clip. Well, that's the intention. You tell me if it's worked. <laughs> I think it has worked. Uh, I really do. Yeah, for me as well, you know, apart from the, you know, obviously there's a group shot with um, the queer Asian um, artists. There's also like my modern interpretation of the Chinese water sleeve dance so um, with Chinese operatic makeup. So just exploring drag in, in Chinese history because we haven't really seen that. We've, we know modern drag, which is what we see on RuPaul, but like we have been, I feel like I wanted to represent that in the video as well and then sort of embrace softness and gentleness, you know, because where I grew up and I suppose like in a, man, many parts of the world and, and here in Australia, Australia as well, there's, you know, definitely concepts of uh, masculinity um, imposed on, um, you know, even queer people, um, especially like as a as someone who identifies as a, as a gay Asian person, as a gay Asian, queer Asian, um, being taught how what to wear, how to behave. So I want to challenge that and have something that is soft and, and gentle and, you know, have the fabric representing movement. So that's also part of the video that I'm really proud of. What can you tell us about drag in Chinese history? It sounds absolutely fascinating. Yeah, so, you know, for me, um, I think people have different interpretations of what drag is. And as someone who is in the Sydney drag scene, I share a lot of spaces in underground cabaret shows with, like, um, you know, drag artists. And, and I usually say drag artists because not everyone identifies as a king or a queen. Um, some people can be genderless, gender-free. That could be their interpretation of it. So for me, like, you know, I think of drag as, you know, um, you're putting on a persona of, of, of depending on the message of your performance. So for me, it's always been like being a gender-free, um, genderless being when I perform. And I feel like Looking at Chinese um, opera with the use of makeup and the different characters in Chinese opera, um, you know, um, with the type of makeup that they use, it's it really is exploring different um, genders and different uh, concepts of gender, even from like back in the day when it was performed. It's a bit more common in Malaysia than than here in Sydney. Yeah. Your music also tackles sex and sexuality, and that really comes out in the clip for your track Smoothie. Tell us about that. <laughs> smoothie, smoothie um, it's a song I wrote, uh, what was it? I think it's three years ago. So it took a three-year break. <laughs> so you probably would notice a shift between, um, you know, from when Smoothie was released and my newest um, track. Um, freedom. So I feel like they're two very different clips, two very different sounds. Smoothie is basically, um, I wrote Smoothie about, um, it's really about 
geez, you're testing my memory now. <laughs> I think the music video is me playing tennis and then just transforming someone from like, you know, a, you know, someone who's losing the game into like a winner. And then like, it's just a camp fun music video. Um, for me, when I wrote that song, I remember now. Sorry, going on in circles. <laughs> so when I wrote Smoothies, really about I was I back then I was I think it was in twenty um seventeen um when I first moved back to Sydney from you know I live in Malaysia for a bit and then um you know I was in you know doing a lot of gigs as a DJ on Oxford Street and you know it was very and this club that I used to play at is that I played at was very like you know um very catered to it's like cis um gay men it wasn't very diverse and i was also hear comments like you know like it was like mask like this masculine guys just, you know mask for mask so like roast smoothie also about like you know it can be soft and femme and like just really embracing that as well you're listening to an interview with dean ty on three crs in your face I took a three-year hiatus because I just wanted to grow more as an artist um, and I wanted to perform more in the underground cabaret uh, scene in Sydney as well. Um, I didn't, you know, I didn't I didn't take the hiatus to focus on DJing. DJing is always an extension of my music, you know. Like I always identify as a performer, as an artist, as a songwriter first. Um, DJing is fun. It's something that I do on a side, um, you know, the, um, you know, and it's, and it comes easy, it, you know, it's, a, it's an easy process for me because I was classically trained in music. Um, but I always identify as a performer, as an artist first, but during the three year hiatus, um, I did more covers. I would still produce my songs, but I would give it an Asian spin <laughs> and try to change the songs to have some form of um, political or cultural message in the lyrics or in the performance. Still a performer first and DJ second. Tell us about the underground cabaret scene you're a part of. Yeah, so I'm actually a regular at, um, you know, parties like, um, well, Oyster Club in Sydney. Um, there are party, the you know Unicorns Party, and there, uh, and queer events at the Red Rattler. Um, you know, there's there's a night called Queerbohood that's run by um Johnny Seymour, part of um the DJ duo Stereogamous at the Beard of Tit, and. I'm actually really proud. Actually, I can't believe I forgot, almost forgot to mention this. I actually produce my own events as well. When you talk about when you talk about underground cabaret, I actually do produce my own events. So I produce this event called um, Worship. Uh, I'm the creator and founder of Worship. So it's a party, it's a cabaret and dance party where you know um, gender diverse and and cutie pop performers from you know different cultural backgrounds can come on stage and. And perform modern interpretations of uh, cultural, spiritual practices, or performance art relating to their gender identity. So I find myself being drawn to, you know, um, events like that, events that bring the community together, because I feel like um, as a community, by seeing performances live on stage, it brings us together and it sort of connects us, connects everyone. If, if that makes sense. <laughs> Absolutely. Tell us about your classical training as a musician. I can really hear it in your track, Freedom. Tell us about it. Right. So um, like a lot of um, Chinese kids growing up in Malaysia, uh, my 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 mum thought it would be like, you know, let's, it was popular in, in Malaysia when I was growing up to like send the kids to like piano classes and like learn how to play the piano. And so I did. Um, I finished on my grades. I was a pretty good pianist. I think I got distinction for um, for piano and like grade eight, like that's the final grade, and then um, distinction for violin as well. And then so that for many many years. But I didn't like um, the structure and the training that I get. It was really good technical training, but it was quite rigid and like to do a lot of very technical stuff a lot of scales and a lot of classical pieces and I found myself listening to like at the time I you know I'm obsessed with um Spice Girls and I grew up in 
you know, listening to like Britney and Christina, I would listen to all of that and was able to play that and mimic that on the piano. So I could, I can play by ear. Um, and that really helps my um, music production these days. So that is, that is really my background, classical music. And then I got eh, a bit over it, got a bit sick of it. And then I went into songwriting and producing um, pop and electronic music now. You play the classical Chinese instrument, the guzheng, in the melody of freedom. Tell us about that instrument. So um, guzheng is, is it's actually electronic, though. Um, so it's all done electronically. Via, so I produce using this software called Ableton. Um, so guzheng is, the guzheng is actually a quite a co- common instrument that you'll find. If you listen to, like, especially traditional Chinese music, or like even some modern um, Chinese music, they like to have a sprinkle of them. <laughs> I like to say a sprinkle of Guzheng. Um, yeah, so so for me, when I produce Freedom, um, you know, it's it's a it's a standard four chord um, uh, pop song. Um, so I just really wanted to I found I find that you know the high frequencies of the Guzheng, especially in the high notes, to really complement the song and and. I, again, I like to use a sprinkle of guzheng throughout the song, which really adds a different um, layer to, to, to the production. Tell us about your mirror-coated guitar. So if, if you're listening and you're wondering what the hell we're talking about, <laughs> a guitar is actually um, a combination of keyboard and guitar, which is why I get the name guitar from. So it's a, it's a keyboard that you play as a guitar with a strap around your neck or shoulder, depending on how you wear it. Um, so it's, I, um, I got the guitar and I decided, oh, it's like, I just want to be a bit mobile on stage and like such a true, like <laughs> a true show girl. Um, so I actually designed it myself. I spray painted it black and I just bejeweled it with um, broken mirror pieces. So it's, it's my perfect companion on stage. <laughs> You're known as the Asian Empress of the Gay Streets of Sydney. What do you think of that title? <laughs> oh my god, I love that. I yes, <laughs> the Asian Empress of the Gay Streets of Sydney. So, like I said, you know, I when I perform, um, you know, because I share a lot of, um, I share a lot of spaces, um, a lot of. Um, you know, events, a lot of events where a lot of drag artists may also perform, uh, do a lot of queer events as well. Um, so for me, like with my performances, I, I decided that, you know, I'm one of the very few or the only queer Asian artists who, to you know, sings live and performs, you know, original music, a bit of cabaret. So I decided that for my performances, I wanted to show people different parts of Asian culture that people might not usually see on stage. Um, and, and so I started creating, um, I started to wear, um, you know, uh, more like cultural costumes on stage. I started to have like elements of gujang and gongs and stuff in the music production. And sometimes I sing um, in, in Mandarin. Um so I describe myself as an Asian empress is more because this way I portray myself. Um, you know, I wear, I also do sometimes wear clothes from different countries in Asia. Like I love the gender, the fluidity and the elegance and the movement of the kimono fabric. But having said that, I think, you know, um, so people can appreciate um, fashion and, and, and different um, cultures in Asia. So I usually try to embody that and to appreciate, but not appropriate. I'm aware that that's not where I grew up. So I grew up in Malaysia, obviously. Um, yeah, so try to have that as part of my performance as well. So tell us about yourself beyond the performer. For instance, what are some of the social justice issues that you care about? Um, for me, the biggest thing is... Um, Queer trans uh, cutie pock visibility is is you know and bipoc visibility is something that is very close to my heart and you know obviously I just try to uh, with my work and in my capacity try to be as inclusive as possible when I'm running and producing an event try to have a, a really diverse 
um, cast of performers, so we can try to have representation, you know, and every voice, you know, from different parts of the community heard on stage. I find that it's very important, you know. So I try to do that in in my capacity, um, because if I just rewind and go back to when I first arrived, um, when I first moved to Sydney. Um, you know, in 2010. So I've been here for a bit over a bit over 10 years, I think. Um, when I first moved here, if you look at the drag scene and the gay scene, like I didn't see, I you know, at that time I didn't see a lot of um, queer people of color on stage. I didn't see any like drag queens who are not white on Oxford Street. So at that time, I just like, I really felt like, you know, I wish I had, I wish I could see myself, even though I don't identify as a as a drag queen. I would like to wish I had seen myself on stage or, or like on TV or, or or you know in in music. So I feel like now um, there's a stronger emphasis on having diversity, um, and and inclusion um, in in the scene and also like in music as well in pop culture. So. Um, yeah, so for me, it is something that is very close to my heart. And I try to, you know, in my capacity, include everyone in my in my events and my productions. So it sounds like you're quite groundbreaking, a bit of a pioneer performing activist in some ways. Oh, I wouldn't call myself a pioneer. <laughs> there are a lot of, I feel like we, the community will have to work together. There are a lot of people that I'm still, I'm learning every day, you know, there are a lot of people who do to do things a lot better than than you know than what I've been doing. You know, I'm still. I suppose, like when I think of my career now, I do feel like um, I'm happy with where where it is and where it's heading. But there's still so much I can learn, and there's so many people that I look up to. Um, people like um, Kat Dopper from Heaps Gay, um, people like artists like Marlena Dali. Um, you know, people run queer events and have. Um, yeah, and, and I look up to them and I look at how they carry themselves and and the message that they convey through their to through their work. Yeah, so yeah. <laughs> well, congratulations on Freedom. It's a fantastic single and thank you so much for chatting with me today on 3CR. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And that was Dean Tai. 3CR There's kind of a lot of a lot of things that are coming up to the fore at the moment as well, particularly in terms of the way that we imagine, for example, essential work and also sort of essential community life or essential caregiving um, and how those how those function. If we think about sort of the way that queer family often takes very very sort of different forms and very you know important and meaningful forms that often don't match the picture of normative, heteronormative family life, but how so many of the of the affordances or the restrictions or the kind of the, the government governmental sort of imagining of the way that we should live and what we need to live and what we need to survive really is shaped around heteronormativity. You know, it's around the family life in the suburb as opposed to many, you know, single individuals who have shared queer family both sexual and community connections that sustain them and that kind of give them give them life and give them give them sort of energy and comfort and safety and security and support you're listening to 3cr community radio 855 am on digital and online 3cr radical radio Catch you next week on In Your Face. Taking us out is The Cure with The Caterpillar.
Face would like to thank Thorn Harbour Health for their sponsorship of this program. Thorn Harbour Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities, a future without HIV, and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more, search Thorn Harbour Health on your search engine or Facebook. <laughs> 